The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to Squawbox this Wednesday. We've got a whole host of companies reporting across the world. Let's get into the details. Bank earnings already dominating the agenda in Europe today, with investors hoping, hoping for another bumper quarter from the sector, as numbers from Unicredit and Deutsche Bank cross the wires. The German lender just reporting seeing a 27% fall in second quarter net profit. I note the return on tangible equity down to 5.4%. We are going to hear from Deutsche Bank's CFO, James von Moltke, this hour. And we'll hear from the Unicredit CEO, Andrea Arcel, exclusively at 10 past 8 Central European time. Well, let's stay with the banking sector. Santander backing its fully around look after posting a 15% jump in first half net interest income. We'll be speaking to the C-suite yet again with the CFO, Jose Garcia Cantera, later this hour, 7.45 Central European time. Well, in the US, uh, earnings from the tech heavyweights dominated. Alphabet shares surged after hours. This one better than expected revenue and profit driven by growth in its cloud unit. Microsoft turns red. Was it the guidance that disappointed? Was it a bit of profit taking? Maybe a little bit of both. And the luxury behemoth LVMH reports a rebound in Chinese sales. But US revenue taking a hit as spending is cannibalized by Americans traveling in Europe. Alison Rose over at NatWest, she's been ousted as the CEO, this after admitting a serious error of judgment over a media leak about the closure of a bank account belonging to the high-profile Brexiteer Nigel Farage. Well, what a fascinating time for the European banks. They should be doing better on the back of expanded NIMS net interest margins that we've seen uh, out of the United States. But there are lots of idiosyncratic pressures, not least the fact that our delinquency is going to start picking up uh, as the economy in Europe struggles to move into further growth as well. What about the investment banking uh, operations over at the likes uh, of Deutsche Bank? Well, we'll come to that in a few moments' time. But what I do want to do is talk a little bit about Unicredit as well. And of course, we are all over this story with reporting. Uh, And look, let me just give you a quick comparison straight away. I just mentioned in the headlines, the second quarter return on tangible equity over at Deutsche Bank is 5.4%. What do you think it is over Unicredit? It is 17.2%. So straight away, ladies and gentlemen, we've already got a story this morning. One fantastic return on tangible equity, one struggling. The former being Unicredit, the latter uh, being Deutsche Bank as well. Um, I'll give a couple more flashes. I know we've got Germana all over this story as well. It looks like the second quarter net profit, 2.31 billion euros versus 1.86 in the average on a company-provided consensus. It is company-provided, and they look like they've got plenty of capital. CET1 ratio, 16.64 at the end of June. But don't take my word for it. Let's get to Germana, who's hot-footed it over to Italy to pour into these numbers in a lot more detail and, of course, speak to the boss. Yes, good morning, Steve. Well, the story for Unicredit was always going to be one of can they continue the momentum. I think it is worth just taking a look at how well the stock has done year to date. It is one of the best performing stocks 
in the stock 600, more than 60% higher on the year compared to the overall banking index. SX70, which is only up 15%. And that tells you a lot about expectations just going into today's number. And I remember speaking to the CEO, Andrea Orsell, at the last earnings report, and I asked him whether or not the momentum, the good momentum that they saw throughout all of 2022, the beginning of this year, whether that can continue. And the answer seems to be yes, because not only is the stock up another 20% since the last earnings report, but today what we're seeing is a huge beat, both on the top and the bottom line, there was some expectation that perhaps we might start to see a sequential drop in some of that uh, bottom line growth, especially when it comes to net interest income. That hasn't transpired. What we are seeing is a very, very strong set of numbers. Now remember, Unicredit is very geared towards higher interest rates. Net interest income comprises about 60% of their total revenue. Uh, and in this case, what we are seeing is that number has also come in uh, better than expectations, 3.5 billion euros. That compares to 3.3 billion euros in the prior month. Again, going back to my conversation with Mr. Orsell last quarter, he did tell me that he was expecting some of the net interest margin uh, tailwinds to peak around now. So this is probably what we're seeing. And also because they benefit from having a lot of their deposits geared towards corporates, they also have had the benefit of not having to be able to pass on the interest rate hikes to depositors as much as other banks have had to. Their beta or how much of the interest rates that they've passed on is only sitting at around 22%. We'll see whether or not that has had to change or whether they've revised that higher coming into the second half of the year. Looking ahead, though, of course, lots of questions about at costs, inflationary pressures on those costs. The fact that we had that bottom line beat is also reassuring. And then there's rampant speculation, Steve, and this has been going on for many months now. And, you know, in Italy, it is one of the major stories in the, bank, in the banking sector here, one of consolidation and whether or not Unicredits, who are sitting on so much CET1 capital, north of 16%, are actually going to use that capital to go out and potentially acquire another bank. One of the names that came up last report card was BPM. At the time, we spoke to Mr. Arcel and he said, look, as, as so long as our price to book ratio of Unicredit is trading at 0.7, it makes more economic sense for us to buy our own stock than to think about uh, going elsewhere. It will be interesting to see whether or not his thinking has changed here. But I think his strategy of restructuring um, streamlining the businesses, keeping costs low has really paid off. And what investors really love, Steve, ultimately at the end of the day is their very strong buyback and distribution efforts. They're sticking to that 5.75 billion target uh, for this year. I can't see any numbers yet that suggest that they've changed that distribution target. And of course, that is one of the reasons why shareholders love the stock. Jumana, fabulous analysis, and I'm really looking forward to your interview with uh, Andrea Orsell as well. Uh, that one coming up at 10 past 8 Central European time and is an exclusive for CNBC. Uh, Deutsche Bank, I mean, again, I've, I've done the crude comparison, and it is crude. There's many, many measures. But looking at the Deutsche Bank return on tangible equity at 5%, and I compare that with that Unicredit figure of 17%, it just looks like there's a gulf between these ones. It really does. That's my crude analysis on just one measure. There's many other measures there, but return on tangible equity is quite a useful one at that. Deutsche Bank has reported a first half pre-tax profit of 3.3 billion euros. 
Well, that's up 2% on the year, despite absorbing non-operating costs of 744 million euros. Uh, That was its highest first half since 2011, actually. Uh, Net revenue for the same period rose 8% on the year to 15.1 billion euros. Now, the company reaffirmed its capital distribution goals and 2023 buyback plans. Can I, just before I tell people what's coming up, just show the shares one more time? Because I just want to um, just remind people how lowly these banks in Europe are trading. Now look, this one is trading right at the middle of its 52-week range. 12.36 being high, 12 euros 36, the low being 7.25, which we hit uh, in October last year. But you can kind of see that the shares for five years, I mean, look at that, they're just marking time. They're the same price they were in 2018. And, and here is another couple of measures for you, very quickly. One of the great measures of the banking sector is price to book. I mentioned rope just now, I'm gonna give you another one. This is price to book. If you are below one in book value, that means the market thinks that your assets aren't worth what you're booking that value at, there or thereabouts. It's a crude measure as well. This one trades at 0.3. It's kind of at the low of the whole European sector, of the global sector as well. So there's something kind of missing in terms of the appreciation for the recovery strategy over at Deutsche Bank. So we need to hear from the management, don't we? Well, we will. We'll hear from the CFO, James von Moltke. That one's coming up in 21 minutes time, if I hit my brakes on time. (laughs) In the meantime, uh, Santander has reported a second quarter net profit of 2.67 billion euros. That beat analysts' expectations. The Spanish lender posted 14.09 billion euros in revenues for the period and says it is on track to meet the 2023 goals. Well, we're hearing from Unicredit. We're hearing from Deutsche. Yeah, we're also hearing from uh, Jose Garcia Cantera, who is the CFO uh, of Santander. We'll do that one in around about 35 minutes time. Right, let's switch back to the major focus without doubt. Last night, we moved from the banking focus solely now to looking at these tech earnings as well. Don't forget the Nasdaq had a bit of a blip at the tail end of last week because of Tesla uh, and indeed uh, Netflix's numbers as well. Well, this time big earnings really kicked off in the tech sector. The, the behemoths, I've used that word already once today, haven't I? Alphabet delivering better than expected results for the second quarter. Revenue rose by 7% to $74.6 billion, whilst EPS also topped estimates. Cloud revenue soared by 28% year on year. Ad revenue rebounded, increasing on an annual basis for the first time in over a year. The shares, as you can see on the right-hand side of your screen, rallied 6.1% after hours. Kind of different story, though, over at Microsoft, and this is interesting. We'll dig into this one. The shares fell. 3.7%. Now, despite a B on the top and bottom lines, uh, the software giant issued lower than expected guidance. I also heard from others. It's just profit taking. They've had a massive rally. Have a look at it. Uh, Anyway, expected guidance slightly lower amid slower growth in its cloud business. Revenue rose by 8% in the fourth quarter to $56.2 billion, whilst revenue in the first quarter is expected to top out at $54.8 billion. Microsoft's cloud business grew by 26% in the fourth quarter versus 40% a year ago. Well, we have got Arjun on set to talk about it, but I've done everything now. I've kind of said everything. Yeah, what <laughs> now, I say, Steve? Well, I'll tell you what you're going to tell. You're going to do, tell the viewers exactly what they want to know. And what they want to know is, why did Microsoft fall and Google, uh, Google, Alphabet's Google, why did that rally? Because I think these were both fantastic set of numbers. Yeah, well, look, I think my, 
this has been a weird kind of quarter, I think, for the tech companies. The reason is that no investors or, or the market wasn't expecting any kind of blowout numbers from these companies. We know that difficult environment. They're forewarned already on a lot of the slowdown that's taking place. So we kind of know what to expect. What the market wanted to see was, is there resilience in the core businesses of these companies? So for, for, for Alphabet, advertising, for Microsoft Cloud. Uh, and going forward, do they forecast some sort of recovery? And I think uh, what we heard from both Microsoft and Alphabet, and I think despite the little blip in the in the after-hour share price of Microsoft, was it, it was pretty resilient. Cloud for Microsoft did slow down. It was about 26% for Azure uh, this quarter versus uh, 27% the prior quarter. It was significantly slower than last year, uh, which was 40% growth. But that's, of course, we had that sort of outsized bump in, in sort of forward demand being pulled or demand being pulled forward. So I think on the whole, and for Alphabet, you saw the ad business as well up three three point three percent. Not massive, but again it was resilient and that's what investors wanted to see. I think the Microsoft story is an interesting one because all we've heard over the past few months is AI, 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 AI. And when we looked at the numbers, I think there were a number of investors. You're gonna break into song there. <laughs> I think AI, a number of investors. AI, AI, AI. <laughs> I thought a number of investors probably thought, hold on, where's this big AI bump? Yeah. When, when's that yeah, happening? That was my next and question. And I think that was Perhaps while we saw a little bit of, of the dip in the after-hour share price, it was a combo of profit-taking as well. But those AI numbers and the impact of AI, we're hearing from management, not expecting to really filter through really till next year. And so I think that's partly uh, what, what the story this, was about. I'll, I'll jump in there because like, that is the buzzword. Mm. You, you mentioned it a few times in, in beautiful song, in beautiful rhythm. Uh, it was a lovely canter to it. But, 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 but is this going to be one of those cases? where actually the real money is being made by the company that everyone thinks is making it, and that's the picks and shovels, i.e. NVIDIA. And actually, others don't quite monetize it quite as much as the people selling the picks and shovels or the GPUs. There'll definitely be a lot of that, I reckon, going forward. But I think Microsoft is a company that can take advantage for it for a couple of reasons. One, firstly, because of the fact that it has a strong cloud business. And really, uh, when you talk about the picks and shovels, Microsoft, I think, is part of that as well because of the cloud infrastructure business it has and you'll see that similarly with Amazon and you did see it again with the Google numbers cloud growth was strong 28% uh, year on year as well again in this current environment where businesses are cost cutting so I think Microsoft is one of those companies but I think a lot of people are expecting it to be now to be something that happens right now in this quarter but I think Microsoft saying look it is something that's happening but it's not something that's gonna um, just appear in one quarter I, I've got 20 seconds left I was give me that um, is Microsoft uh, uh, no is Microsoft uh, well it's trading 30 times forward is Google cheap it trades at 20 times forward. And I wouldn't normally say that about a company trading 20 times forward. But when I look at what else is going on in valuations elsewhere, what are the analysts saying to you? Well, I think they're looking at Microsoft at, I think, about 33 forward yeah, and yeah. saying, well, look, yeah. uh, this is actually undervalued at this point because of the AI play, because of the cloud play, etc. Remember, Google's business core is not cloud, it's advertising at yeah. this point as well. And so, so uh, I think many people think, well, this is a fair valuation. But as it does transition further into cloud, as it becomes a major cloud player, and if it manages to catch up with Amazon and, and Microsoft, that's when it may command a bit more of a premium. Super dude, my friend. And I'll see you a little bit later, yeah? Absolutely. Fantastic. Right, coming up on the show, we're going to hear from Deutsche Bank CFO, that is James von Moltke. Uh, that after the lender reported its highest first half pre-tax profit since 2011. Uh, plus, we'll bring you Jumana's exclusive interview with the Unicredit CEO, Andrea Arcel. That's coming up at 10 past 8 Central European time. And later on, we'll check in with Europe's energy sector with the CEOs of Italgas and Energas. Uh, don't miss those conversations. They're both first on CNBC, you know. And elsewhere, Nissan reporting its first quarter numbers. The auto giant finalizing a 600 million euro stake in Renault's Ampere EV unit. We're going to speak to the CEO, Makota 
Ushida-san uh, in an exclusive interview at 10 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Huge event. I haven't even mentioned today. Something, ah, FOMC, is it? Oh, yeah, that'll be it. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce a 25 basis point rate hike today, taking the benchmark rate to the highest level in 22 years. I was such a young man then. Well, ish. Uh, Investors will also be watching out for any commentary from the Fed on a potential soft landing as inflation in the US continues to cool. Let's get an absolute expert on this one who's been following it far longer than I have as well. Steve Englander is the head of research and strategy at Standard Chartered. Steve, really nice to see you, sir. Look, um, are we in cloud cuckoo land that we're at the end of this cycle? I looked at the consumer confidence data yesterday. It's absolutely flying. I looked at Visa. They said the consumer's still fine. I looked at the jobs data. Everyone's got a job who wants a job, it seems, at the moment. Are we a little bit ahead of our skis on this one in saying we're done after this one? Um, I, I don't think so. I, you know, the data are genuinely mixed. You look at a lot of the surveys that are coming in and some of the other data, it's not telling us that we're in a recession, but it's telling us that we're out of the comfortable growth zone. And if it gets any worse, we're likely to be in a recession. Um, and at the same time, you know, for a number of reasons, the inflation outlook looks very good. We know that rents lag and rental inflation is a third of the CPI, and that's going to come down sharply in coming months. Used car prices, which were a big driver of inflation, are coming down. And kind of what do you think is going to happen to U.S. goods prices when China PPI is minus 5%? I mean, so there's reason to think that the inflation outlook is much better than the Fed has been letting on. Yeah, all right. I'll take that fully on board, Steve. But but in terms of the market's aspiration, which is expressing through measures such as, I don't know, the, the, the future curve and what have you, and looking at the Fed fund futures, the CME rate watch there as well, Time and time again, they've been calling for these cuts in rates in the next year. And yet, actually, the truth of the matter is, historically, over the last 30 years, from the first, uh, the last hike to the first cut, the average in 30 years is 11 months. Are we just getting, again, I'll, I'll make the same point, but from the market's point of view, just a little bit too exuberance on the, on the chances of a cut? I, I think the answer is... Um... Yes, but I, I think before we get too exuberant on, on the chances of the cut, we're also getting too impatient about how long it takes for monetary policy to work. If, if you think of it, everybody who started working since 1998, they've only seen act of God type of recessions. First, the internet bubble, you know, bursting with a big burst, then kind of the great financial crisis and obviously getting hit by COVID. You know, if if we're having a 1970 type of recession or a 1990 type of recession, um, that took a long time to start. And I think that the impatience with saying, well, if if they raise rates and you don't see a recession, you know, a year later, it's not going to happen. I think that has proven to be wrong uh, throughout most of history. 
Yeah, and, and look, I'm very cognizant of the fact that um, you know you've you've done your time at City, which is more US focused. Dare I say it? Now you're at Standard Charter, which is, uh, you know, dare I say, it, has a very Asian focus as well. Is the Asian focus or is the Asian growth story going to come to the rescue of the global economy? Because at the moment, I can't see certainly where China is going to pull the rabbit out of the hat from, even though they've, of course, in the last 48 hours started talking about stimulus. Well, first I'll say done my time can be read several ways. I had a very good experience there. I think there are two Asias that we're looking at. I mean, one is, you know, the China that we're all focused on, but there's also an Asia that begins in the Gulf and extends um, through India where things are booming, uh, that there's intermediaries uh, between Russia, which is heavily sanctioned and, and serves the, uh, the oil that they're trying to export and the rest of the world. So that part of Asia, which doesn't get much attention, is doing very well. I think China, look, you know, it's obviously disappointing. I, the way I read it and is that the measures that they're taking, they're trying very, very hard not to go over the top in terms of providing stimulus that they're going to regret. On the other hand, it's pretty clear that they're trying to prevent that downside from being too deep. So I, I think the question is not, is China going to be booming, but whether it's going to be good enough. And I think the, the answer is probably good enough is closer to the truth. So good enough out of China concerns about what's actually really happening in the US uh, over the recession, but certainly better inflation data, as you say, than you think the Fed's uh, possibly owning up to at the moment. What does that mean for a lot of equity owners who have basically either joined the rally late or actually been part of it for a long time, even though they've held their nose and haven't liked it as well? Are, are we going to see a big retrenchment in some of those equity markets? Well, I'm more an FX guy, so I'll translate that into FX terms, but I think it applies to other risk markets as well. I, I think the reality is that the U.S. used to be, you know, 50% of global GDP in, in the 60s. In the 90s, it was maybe 30%. Now it's maybe 15 17% of global GDP. Um, its growth doesn't matter much for the rest of the world. On the other hand, its financial conditions, its monetary policy is probably 150% of global uh, financial conditions. And if we're right that the U.S. is going to have a moderate slowdown enough to get the Fed to take its foot off the brakes a little bit, I think the risk, the improvement in risk conditions is probably going to be the dominant force. So I think in FX terms, it means that the dollar declines and that some of the higher beta currencies appreciate. Then you can kind of draw your own conclusions about what that means for risk in other markets. But I think the, the key point I would say is, is that the um, risk premium as determined by Fed policy matters more than sort of uh, is U.S. GDP growth half a percent positive or half a percent negative. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to CNBC.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.